No my my welcome to the Maxim Institute podcast. My name is Tim Wilson. I'm executive director at Maxim Institute, and we're discussing today palliative care and the urgent case for accessible palliative care in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, we will be discussing and getting across what's the difference between a good death and a bad death, what exactly palliative care is, how accessible it currently is in New Zealand, our aging population, and why the need is so urgent. We're also going to look into how we fix that need. I'm joined right now by Professor Leroy William. He's been a palliative medicine specialist since 2009. He's based in Melbourne. He trained in the UK and New Zealand before settling in Australia. He's currently the clinical director of the supportive and palliative care service at Eastern Health and has academic positions at uh, Monash University and La Trobe University. He's currently uh, the president of the Australian and New Zealand Society of Palliative Medicine. Uh, Leroy, welcome. Thank you, Tim. Kia ora. Joining us as well is uh, senior researcher from Maxim Institute, Danielle Van Dalen. Now, Danielle joined Maxim in 2016. She's completed uh, a master's degree in political silent, uh, science, pardon me, silence, no, not silence, science, uh, from uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands and has uh, produced research on a number of issues for Maxim, including overcoming the barriers to employment for people with disabilities, the role of government and society in protecting our society's freedom, as well as leading Maxim's research on the End of Life Choice Act. Danielle is a senior researcher, as I said, at Maxim, and is the author of Ending Well, the Urgent Case for Accessible Palliative Care in New Zealand. Kia ora, Danielle. Kia ora, Tim. Great to have you both with us. Um, Leroy, I want to come to you first. Uh, can you tell me what is the difference uh, in your experience between a good death and a bad death? Well, it's a very subjective um, thing to think about. Many people have tried to define what a good death is, but I mean, it's so personalized with people and their culture, their kind of religious beliefs. Um, how they envisage they want their end of life to be. And it's not something that people generally think about. However, I mean, there are people who are supported in the right way and have the time that they have as they're dying, uh, a time that's actually very beneficial for them to say their goodbyes, to say their thank yous, to say that they love people, to also have a, a, a perspective for the family to think about the life that's been lived and celebrate that in some way, shape or form. So a good death can be... Um, in some ways, uh, a reflection of the life that's been lived and the connection with the friends and family, whānau um, of people. Um, and it can be done in a way that respects them as a human being and the life that they've lived. Or sometimes that time may not be possible to, to have that. And they may have not made, they may have made those choices along their lives where they don't necessarily have friends or family. That's kind of one aspect. The other aspect is the kind of physical side of symptoms, which generally you know, we can control with med in medicine in terms of pain and other symptoms. So what, you, what, I'm, what I'm hearing is that there's a whole raft of aspects of our, our, our totality as humans that, that rear up during, during the dying process. And depending on where we've come from and depending on who we are, we manage them in different ways. Yes, we've all got coping mechanisms that we utilise in our life to deal with what life throws at us. Um, and so how we deal with our life is often how we're going to face our death. Um, so the idea of a good or a bad death 
um, is really part and parcel of that person and how we can support them um, as they deteriorate. And so um, it's, a, it's a very pertinent question that people are asking, especially now. Um, and we're, we're sort of spending a bit more time at least discussing death and dying. In fact, it's um, a festival of the dead in Mexico at, um, at this time of the year. Uh, so this is an opportune time to, to recognize that other cultures do recognize uh, death and dying a little bit more than we do in um, some societies. And so this is another kind of way for us to reflect on how we would like our death to be and um, how we can try and prepare for that as much as possible. I was just interested, Danielle, because I was uh, on hearing what, uh, what Leroy is describing. Uh, as you delved into palliative care and learned about what it actually involved. Did your concept of death change? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Yeah, I, th I think it did. Um, like prior to beginning this uh, research, I had seen four grandparents have four very different deaths. Um, uh, so I had, I had seen up close what death can look like. But my first re real introduction to palliative care was through a book of a woman, I think I can now call a friend, Dr. Catherine Mannix. And she, in her book, um, it's called With the End in Mind, she outlines a number of stories about uh, the the process of dying. Um, and, and this was my comment to Leroy. I, I've heard it said that dying like birth has uh, is, is a process. Um, it is different for everyone. It's always different. But there are recognizable steps and stages that you can see. As Leroy said, we don't talk about death very often. Um, it's it's almost a taboo subject in many cultures. Um, I think in New Zealand, it's a something that we're not really very good at talking about. Um, even in the way that we use phrases like passing away um, as opposed to someone having died. We shy away from even the word of death. And it's important, or I found it really helpful reading just as a beginning stage, reading Catherine's book and reading these stories of, of, of dying, some really difficult, some really not, and all beautiful in their different ways, um, seeing these different steps and stages and understanding um, in a whole fresh way what normal dying looks like. Uh, so actually in the beginning of this paper, um, I included an, an extract from Catherine's book, right from the beginning of her book, where she recounts um, being a junior doctor and hearing her, her senior doctor, the lead doctor, explain to a patient what normal dying looks like because he recognized that this patient was, was afraid and needed to understand that to remove a lot of that fear. And I think that's something that, that we need to be doing today. Is that, is that something, Leroy, that, um, that Danielle used the phrase um, before, a, a beautiful death? Uh, that's not, that's, those aren't two words that we would typically expect to be associated. But is, is, is that something that clinically you've been able to witness yourself? Oh, well, certainly from the perspective of what I might perceive that to look like for the person I've been looking after. So um, you get to know some people if you've got the time to do that. And then you can understand what's important to them. And if you can achieve that uh, in that period of dying that they have, then you recognize that that's something quite special that you've managed to pull together. In 
in conjunction with the family and whānau of that person and in respecting their wishes and what they would want. So it can be a beautiful death in terms of how you might perceive it, um, but really it's important that that person has already defined what that beautiful death might look like so that we can enable that as much as possible to happen. And certainly, um, you know, people are afraid um, and people want to be in a safe place. So it's, it's about providing that safety. It doesn't necessarily mean the building. It's about the safety of the people around you that can actually um, be there. And so you realize you're not alone. Um, and it's also about the kind of support that you have and the care that you have to ensure that you're as comfortable as you can be made. The sense that I got it as you were speaking, it took me back to um, my my own grandmother dying, and how we all gathered together around her bed and told stories, uh, remembered um, the beautiful things she'd done, the funny things she'd done, the way she'd cared for us, and it was actually um, it was actually, and I think she would have loved this, but it was a, un a unifying time for the family in a way that uh, I'm not sure we've actually been able to quite reproduce. And I think that that uh, I understand um, where you're taking, you know, what you're describing with that personally. Danielle, you've been looking um, at, uh, I think we're describing the palliative care experience. There are actually macro benefits uh, if we look at palliative care in terms of, uh, uh, and your paper describes it, um, actual quality of life but also life expectancy. Can you tell me a bit more about that, please? It is a bit surprising, I suppose. Um, you would expect, I think, as someone who is not a, a medical um, practitioner, uh, my initial expectation would be that palliative care would have not have an impact on um, length of life. You would hope that it would have an impact on quality of life. Um, uh, but there are studies that have shown in both cases, um, so both that quality of life can be improved because you're caring about more than just the person's physical health with palliative care. Um, this is what we've been kind of saying in a roundabout way. Uh, palliative care is all about the, the emotional and mental um, health of the person and their spiritual health. Um, it, it, it is whole of person care. And it's not just that person, it's their, their family and whanau. It is um, not just that very moment of death, but it's a, it's a long process right through to into the bereavement process. So the, the family and whanau are being cared for after the death as well, um, which is incredibly important. So all of that contributes to improving someone's quality of life at the end of life. And then there are, are studies coming out saying that you're actually starting to see quantity of life incre um, inc increased um, when palliative care is introduced. And I think this is due to the kinds of care um, that is that is being received. Um, you're not having um, the same kind of hospital admissions. Um, you, you've got lo lower hospital admissions, um, certainly lower emergency department admissions, um, different kinds of or less procedures that are happening. Um, and um, every time someone has a medical intervention of some kind, there is risk attached to that. Uh, I was talking to a doctor a wee while ago and they were saying um, it was a surgeon and they were saying you know it's so easy as a surgeon to get focused on the the particular in this case like the particular cancer and can we remove the cancer but you forget actually will the person survive the operation 
Is that is that is that a, a danger of the medical profession, um, uh, Leroy? In that um, you you simply because because of the sheer numbers of people you're dealing with, you just start to regard uh, humans as a collection of uh, symptoms, uh, and and it, it, it's easy to drift away from the fact that that, that we're more than just that. I think yes, uh, you know the over treatment of of people within the healthcare system. Um, without them necessarily having the right conversation to understand exactly what the treatment entails, uh, the, the benefits, the side effects, um, and how that fits into their wishes, um, how that they want uh, their lives to um, unfold in the latter years. So um, I, I think some of the deaths that I've seen over the years have certainly been from over-treatment where you know, there's this idea that someone's on a conveyor belt of treatments. So they're diagnosed with something and they just feel they have to continue to say, yes, I'll have that, either because they've got the hope that they're going to be cured or potentially they're doing it for other people. So much like in the argument um, with the End of Life Choices Act at the moment, people sort of saying, well, they, you know, people can be a burden. People can also choose medications and treatments uh, because of families wanting them to still be around. Um, and that's maybe necessarily not, not necessarily what that person wants. So there's certainly the element of um, the medicalization that we need to be concerned about. Um, and do people really have the health and death literacy they need to make the decisions that are more pertinent for their lives um, as well? And I think the, the other thing that Danielle was talking about, if you think about any time in healthcare when you, when you meet a, a general practitioner or, or go into hospital, how much are you considered from your physical care as well as your spiritual care, your psychological care and your social care? And when I say social care, I mean, you know, your, your relationships with um, uh, family and whanau, your kind of position within your family. You may be a breadwinner. You may be someone who cares for everyone else. Your position within your community, your position within society. How much is, you know, the financial side of it, the cultural side of it, how much of that is really all cared for or, or, or um, considered as we're treating you? Now, if we're not doing that, then we're not providing holistic care. And many people, if you look at the WHO definition of health, or if you look at the, um, the aspects of treating people from a medical, from a healthcare perspective, would need to consider people as whole people, not just their diseases. And so if we're not, if you, if you reflect on that, whenever you go into healthcare systems, whether they're considering all those aspects of your care, then clearly we're, we're missing the mark uh, quite, quite largely. And it shouldn't be until you're in that dying phase that then you start to be you know, thought of as a whole person. It should be something that's inherent within healthcare. And this is where I think that you know, palliative care can offer that approach uh, to the broader healthcare um, community to ensure that we do treat people as whole people. And we of, we're often advocating for people to have either more treatment because they've been written off maybe because they're too old. Um, not that that's an in, inherent ageism within the system, but it's sometimes the risks and balances and maybe the communication isn't there as it needs to be to explain that. Or we're advocating for people to have less treatment because that's not what they want. And so, you know, we need to think about the whole healthcare system in a, in a, in a manner that's, really respects and, and engenders that trust, trusting relationship that uh, medicine's all about. And I think it, it's really important just um, when we talk like this to 
be clear that we're not trying to say that doctors are doing things wrong or, or, or terrible at their job, um, but the medical system uh, is is complex and hospitals are busy and uh, often quite crazy places. Uh, so trying to, to do all of this and care for so many patients that you're having to care for quickly um, or efficiently in your day, um, it doesn't lend itself, the system doesn't lend itself to doing this well. What I would say is when we think about that holistic care, certainly the hospital system and the healthcare system does focus on the physical side, very well. Um, the psychological side, maybe um, you know, could be improved. But if you think about the the kind of psychological, social, and spiritual side of care, that's really done by our communities. It's done by our friends and found and far now and our culture that allows and our communities. That's where the care from that perspective is is predominant. And so, therefore, it's a it's an amalgamation of healthcare and the community, the society we live in, to ensure that we look after all people um, at any stage of their life. And I think that, yes, the healthcare system is pushed into a certain direction. And, you know, the, the, the way the system is, you're, you're in the hospital system and hopefully back home as quickly as possible. And what we need to make sure is that those, um, those aspects of support that need to be there in the community are also um, readily available as much as they would be when you're in crisis and need to go into the hospital. Danielle, we're talking about um, about just exactly what palliative care is. How how accessible, how available is it currently in New Zealand? I think uh, there's a couple of ways to answer that question. Palliative care and um, accessing palliative care in New Zealand, currently it depends on who you are and where you live. Um, so me as a, a Pākehā living in Auckland, um, I am close to a number of big hospice centres um, and would uh, be likely to, to find those incredibly helpful um, and uh, receive really brilliant care in those spaces. Um, uh, if you lived on the west coast of the South Island in New Zealand, um, you're much less likely to, to receive that kind of care uh, because there isn't a hospice building down there. There is a hospice trust um, and they provide money um, or financial support for families, for whānau, who are caring for loved ones at the end of life. Um, but, there, but there isn't a hospice building. There isn't a specialist hospice doctor or nurse um, nearby who can, can help care for you. Um, so you would have to travel for that care. Um, if you were someone who is uh, Maori or Pacific, uh, uh, feeling um, at home in the hospice system um, would be is is what I understand to be um, a bit more complex. Um, hospice have done some brilliant work in the past few years to try and be very aware of the the challenges there and um, are trying to overcome those. Um, I think there are more steps that, that can be taken in that space. Um, but essentially, yeah, accessing palliative care in New Zealand depends on who you are, where you live. Uh, there is a, a well-used phrase in public health. Um, uh, people talk about uh, healthcare by postcode. Uh, so whatever your postcode is, um, 
will determine what kind of care you're going to receive and that's definitely the case with palliative care. What you said Danielle about the postcode, um, the postcode healthcare, um, that that well, not, well used phrase, um, I want to just knock that back to uh, Leroy in the sense that how important is it for us to be treated, particularly at the end of life, in, in and around the area where we live, in your experience? I think, you know, people, uh, first of all, most people want to die at home. Uh, and so that's part and parcel of the, of the answer to your question, because um, if people want to die at home, that's where they feel most comfortable. That's where, um, you know, family and whanau are, and they're in their community. Um, so to be removed from that position to a different position then leads to certain, a feeling of, uns, you know, not being safe. But how, like I said before, it depends if you feel that you're not safe in your home because symptoms are, um, you know, out of control and you need to be somewhere where, where the, maybe the family are not able to cope with looking after you at home. So people often make promises to each other that, yep, um, you know, uh, in sickness and in health, um, I'm going to be there, I'm going to look after you at home, this is your wish. But, you know, we people are living longer with more complexity and more problems that are arising. And if we are not getting the right elements of care involved soon enough, that can cause lots of problems in the community. And so then they end up coming into hospital or to the hospice. So <clears throat> um, having that... Um, having that awareness that where does that person want to be, where they want to be careful, but then at the end of life, where may they want to die? The problem then becomes if they want to die at home, have they really had a proper discussion with their family? And do we really know that we can support that family the best? Uh, we'll try to, but if they really are not happy to do that, um, it's about an open conversation. And so we have many family meetings where everyone's playing a bit of a dance um, it's a bit like um, sex education at school. The, these are some words I never expected to hear in this discussion, but please carry on. <laughs> Let me clarify. Um, kids go off to school and they get sex education. And we know as parents, they're getting sex education and they come back and we know they've, they've had it and the, and the kids know that they've had it, but no one wants to talk about sex education at home. In the same way, um, you know, people make these promises. They're going to look after the people until they die but they don't really want to have the honest conversation. So, you know, I'm not, I didn't train to be a doctor or a nurse and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to cope. I'm really struggling to see you um, deteriorate. Uh, and this is a different person that I'm used to. Um, so you can, you can understand the emotions that are there. They want to do the right thing, but either they don't have the practical support or necessarily uh, the resilience to do that because their coping mechanisms are also affected by what they're seeing. So some people may be very practical in their coping me mechanisms to see their loved one deteriorating, or they may be very emotional and that might hamper their practicality in terms of supporting that person. So it's about connecting with the supports that you have. And often we'll say to, say to people, you know, do you have other family members that could come and help. You'll have to get a roster going. Do you have some fine hour that could help? You know, that's where big families often become, um, you know, very useful in terms of that support, but, and obviously very useful at other times of life. But when you have, you know, the social setting that we have in our societies where people are more isolated, isolated as they get older, um, it becomes problematic for the older generation to actually have the connections within their communities to support them to die at home. 
Danielle, you've, you've described the case for uh, improved accessibility uh, to palliative care as urgent. Is this because of our aging population? Yeah, exactly. Um, we, so if you, Statistics New Zealand have lots of data around this. Um, it's no secret we have an aging population. Uh, it's something that we hear about periodically. Um, the impact of that aging population on palliative care is going to be significant. Uh, so in the next 30 years, um, the, the number of people who are aged 85 and over is expected to triple. Um, the number of people in need of palliative care in the next 20 years is expected to increase by half. In the next 50 years, that number is expected to double. Um, so these are, these are significant increases um, that if we don't um, make some changes pretty soon, uh, our palliative care services um, are not going to be equipped to uh, do this work well. And I know that 20 and 50 years sounds like a long time, um, but these are not quick fix questions. These are things that take um take time uh, a lot of what we've been talking about is um awareness we need new zealanders to have a, a cultural shift around in their understanding of dying of caring well um of the the, the health system to shift and my golly that's a, a bit of a beast um to get your head around um uh is so there's big changes that need to happen and actually it's it's really ideal that we're having this conversation now because there are already changes in the in the health space happening in New Zealand. So let's let's tie these together because we really need to be. Yeah, Leroy. In terms of um, of of the amount of time that we're discussing, we're talking about decades. Uh, is that something that that is an impediment to the urgency for palliative care reform and for 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 putting palliative care into the health system because it's like, oh, look, it's something we can postpone. We kick it down the road, we kick it down the road. And then in 20 years, we've got a real crisis on our hands. Well, Tim, you mentioned, you know, um, sort of palliative care being part of a, the system and we should be part of the system already from all the reasons I've already explained. But if we needed another reason, well, the COVID pandemic is another example of, you know, um, a virus that affects much of the population, if not all of the population, and has the potential to um, end many lives. So how do we prepare to look after that, that number of potential deaths in a society? Now, we've seen the terrible pictures from the UK, the US, um, Italy, Spain, you know, we've seen these pictures of um, people being isolated from their fa families, um, deaths occurring in a certain way. And if the health pro professionals don't have the ability to look after those people as they're dying in, in a holistic way as much as possible, um, then, you know, that, that just shows how much we, we need to promote palliative care within our healthcare system. Because what we've seen is that from an educational perspective, most people as they go through their undergraduate um, training will get, uh, on average, about a week of palliative care education and about five or six years of training. Um, so that's insufficient. Secondly, they then go into a system where, you know, palliative care is an interprofessional discipline. 
So we use the expertise of the whole team to try and ensure that we're giving the best care possible. Um, now we're trained in silos and then we're thrown together in hospitals to work as team. Um, now that needs to be coordinated as well. And then there needs to be this um, discussion about communication and how we actually communicate that things are go not going so well as they should be. Um, you know, things are deteriorating. We need to know what the right thing is to do. And those aspects of care kind of people start to understand them a little bit as they as they're working in hospitals or in the community and and they see death and dying around them and they're keen to learn more about what goes on however there is this sort of cultural taboo that we have where some people see it as a failure and some people see it well we shouldn't be talking about death and dying we should be talking about curing people and yes medicine has cured people but there are many people with chronic diseases who medicine is really just tinkering until really the deterioration happens. And we need to be clear from a medical perspective or healthcare perspective, what people want us to do, because we will continue to treat people um, if they're undecided, because that's what we do. However, to actually say, no, I, I don't want that treatment. I'm, you know, I would rather do X, Y, Z and, and sort of um, you know, have my uh, care at home and with the people around me that I want is important. So there's a number of elements to this. There's the holistic care, there's a the communication, and then there's the education so that um, palliative care can't see everyone that's dying. Um, much like a cardiologist doesn't see everyone with a heart. So there needs to be an ability for the rest of the, of the healthcare profession to look after people who are dying and do it that well. And then if there's more complexity in that and more, more issues that need to be raised to a specialist level, then that's where specialist palliative care comes in. Leroy, I just want to ask you, um, how will the arrival of euthanasia-assisted dying change the landscape in this discussion? Well, my concern is that, um, you know, that the people have talked about a small proportion of the population that would um, want this. Um, and the issue is that if we haven't, if we haven't looked at the population and our systems as they stand at the moment, and we've been discussing this already, the issues that are, are present in the system, inherent in the system. So the lack of education around palliative care, the inability of the healthcare system to deliver good end of life care for everyone, um, the lack of holistic care within the healthcare system so that everyone's considered as a whole person, then by introducing this at this point, we haven't really solved the problems. I can, I can talk to the Australian statistics in terms of deaths in Australia. They're on average per year, 160,000 deaths in Australia. Um, and that's been sort of roughly the same over many, over many years. Specialist palliative care is involved with 25% of those deaths. And we kind of know the outcomes of that because we do benchmarking. 37.5% um, of those deaths occur suddenly. Massive, massive heart attack, massive stroke. People don't get a chance to say goodbye. Uh, you know, it's a sudden event. Um, and then 37.5%, um, actually, we know that they've got an illness that's life-limiting. But we know nothing about those deaths. We know nothing about how those deaths occur. They're not referred to specialist palliative care for the very, very same reason I've just said. We, we can't see everyone that dies. And so we need to have an understanding of how that care is actually being delivered. And it's those experiences that people have that potentially might, might um, make them make decisions about their end of life that otherwise, if they were supported in the right way, they might not make. We also need to ensure, like I said, 
that communication skills within the healthcare system is such that everyone in the healthcare system is trained to have communication skills um, in the, uh, and so they can actually talk to people in the right way. You know, I guess what, what the phrase you used before that stuck out for me, death literacy, in a sense. That's right. So health literacy is one thing that we know that the, the population needs to um, improve on. I mean, we, we've, we've heard in the debates previously that people have misunderstood um, what, what the End of Life Choice Act really was about. Uh, in terms of euthanasia. Or what palliative care is about. <laughs> what palliative care is about. There's often the conflation between the two that we still see. Um, and then there's also death literacy, as we, as we said, the kind of extension of, 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 you know, what death really looks like. And Catherine Mannix and Rod McLeod have done videos to just highlight what normal death is like. Danielle, it seems that this is, uh, this is an urgent need. Uh, the accessibility is not there. How do we fix it? What, what did you find out? There are um, a number of recommendations that I make in the paper. Um, in fact, there are five key areas uh, that I considered. Um, so those being governance and structure. Um, it's really important that we think about how uh, our overarching strategy, um, the last uh, and only uh, palliative care strategy New Zealand's ever had was written in 2001. Uh, that's, that's 20 years ago. Another one of those areas was around public awareness. I think we've talked a lot about public awareness in this conversation and the need for New Zealanders to understand what palliative care is and how, um, what their role in that process of caring for loved ones is. We need significant focus on training, on support and education, and that's that's uh, support for people in um, right right throughout the healthcare system. So nurses and doctors. We need uh, to care for, uh, ensure that families and whānau get the support that they need. Um, there's an, a wonderful organisation in Australia, which Leroy is actually a part of, called Violet, um, and they provide care and support and, through phone consults um, for family and whānau who are caring for loved ones. Um, something like that in New Zealand, beginning something like that th um, through some funding, a pilot program of some sort. Uh, and on that, we need we need funding. We need palliative care to have sufficient funding. Currently, hospice, they're not fully funded. Um, the irony is that the End of Life Choice Act will be fully funded. Um, but instead, our, our palliative physicians are, are being supported by op shops, by, by cake baking. And then finally, we need to think about accessibility. What does it look like to improve regional accessibility? What does it look like to um, improve cultural accessibility so that anyone, no matter who you look like or where you live, um, can access palliative care? Leroy, um, we've got to wind things up. Are you optimistic that we can get this right? Um, yes. <laughs> a, big deep, a big breath. Look, I think that uh, we, we have to have some hope that um, the pandemic is an opportunity for change. And our healthcare system has been, you could, all, you could argue, broken in the West for a, for a long time because the way it's working at the moment is not necessarily supporting everyone. So there's a postcode lottery. There's the element of kind of rushing people through the hospital system, um, funding based on sort of different service delivery models, that there needs to be a change. And I think that COVID has brought to everyone's attention how we feel when we're isolated from our communities and from our families. And you imagine that with someone who's got a life-limiting illness. 
In fact, they've been going through that process already. Um, so before COVID, this is what happens when you get a life-limiting illness. People don't know what to say. Um, sometimes that you, and, and work colleagues drift away. And so they become more isolated within their communities. Um, and really, we need to sort of get back to that idea of um, how we can marry healthcare systems and healthcare professionals with the communities within which they sit. There are different ways for us to actually be thinking about this. And I remain optimistic that if we move towards treating people as whole people and dealing with all aspects of their individuality, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual, that there will, we'll have a much better connectedness uh, to support each other in our societies going forward. Okay, cautious optimism from Leroy, thank you. Danielle, why do we need to get this right? Just very quickly. I, I, I think if we don't get it right, we're gonna see increasing numbers of New Zealanders having bad deaths. If we do, we're going to have New Zealanders coming together and caring for one another well, um, loving one another right through the dying process um, and ensuring that all New Zealanders have the best possible chance at a good death. Danielle Van Dalen, Senior Researcher, Maxim, and uh, Professor Leroy William, thank you very much. Thank you.